Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I can't decide if I'm more nervous now or if I was earlier. I got to preach for the first service too, so uh, I guess we're going to find out and see. Um, but I'm really excited to be here and to get to share with you um, one of my favorite passages of scripture and something that um, I guess has helped me a lot, you know, since I've been walking um, with Christ. Um, so I hope it will be an encouragement <coughs> for you today, and so we'll, let's just get started. So we are going to be walking through one of my favorite passages today, as I said, um, a text from the book of Psalms. Now we know that the book of Psalms is actually a collection of songs, and so we might want to think of the Psalter, um, as my old Hebrew professor used to say, as Israel's iPod, to kind of bring it in today. Um, our modern times. So these psalms were the music, uh, where their music, it's what they sang, what they memorized and prayed. These songs, in a sense, made up the soundtrack to their life. And, you know, music is a way for us to communicate with one another and with God. Throughout history, we've seen the importance of music as it's been used in celebrations, uh, to memorialize great victories. It has been used to teach, to empower, to rebuke and to scorn. It's used to profess great love, to pose questions and offer answers. And so often music is used to express our grief, to mourn, to ache, to console, and to hope. Now we can tell a lot about a person by the music they listen to, right? I mean, if you just happened to find my iPod and took a look at what music I had on there, you might start to paint a picture of who I am and some of the, some of the things I think about. You may be able to gain some perspective on how I view certain things in life. And perhaps you'll discover what's important to me. I didn't admit this in the first service, but I was going to talk about what you would have found on my iPod when I was in seventh grade, 13 year years old. You would have found nothing but Hanson. Everybody, everybody remember Hanson? Yeah, they're the ones that came out with that Umbach song that dominated the airwaves of the radio and uh, my life in seventh grade. And so you would have known that Hanson was important to me, and I would have been thinking about what an umbop was, so, which is, apparently is a moment in time, so in case you were wondering. So but now, uh, I don't listen to, uh, you know, while I still might have a few Hanson songs on my iPod, I've grown, I've grown, and I listen to some different music. So now I pick songs that inspire me, that challenge me, songs that are better expressing what I think and feel than my own words. We are drawn to songs that we can relate to, to those we easily see ourselves in. And I'm thinking, my sister and my husband and I got to take my mom to the Journey concert on Friday night. And so all you have to do is be at a concert to see how music affects people. Um, some of the people that we were watching, I mean, you really, certain songs come on and they get up and they're dancing and they're singing it because they can relate to it in their life. Um, so it was a lot of fun if you're a Journey fan or Pat Benatar, she was there too. So, anyways, <laughs> and so think about when a song gets stuck in your head. Sometimes this is incredibly annoying, right? So <laughs> if Mbop is stuck in your head now and you're not a fan, I'm really sorry. <laughs> uh, but music and poetry have a way of getting stuck in our brains so that we have to think about it. We can't not think about it. And if we can think about the Psalms in this way, that these were the songs that God's people in times past walked around humming and singing and getting stuck in their heads, we will realize that it's in this songbook that we find the heart of Israel's theology. This is further evidenced by the fact that as far as scripture goes, it's the Psalms that are quoted most often by the New Testament writers. So not counting just allusions, but actual quotations, there's some 93 verses that are quoted from the Psalms 
and sometimes they're quoted more than once. Jesus himself quoted the Psalms on several occasions, and we find allusions to the Psalms continued during the uh, period of the Apostolic Fathers and throughout church history. So this songbook of theirs has become our songbook as well. Now one reason I think this has happened is that it is incredibly easy and natural for us to identify with these psalm writers. Pick your psalm and it's not hard to find ourselves there at some point in our lives. We have all known some kind of joy and we've all known some kind of sorrow. And we have, like so many of those who've gone before us, found ourselves in times of deep despair. The cries of the psalmist are our cries and the questions of the psalmist are our questions too. So all this just to say that the Psalms are important to our lives, both individually and as a church community, and as they can tell us a lot about who we are and something about who God is. So today I want us to have a listen to one of my favorite songs from Israel's iPod. And so I'm talking about Psalm 42 and 43. Now notice I say Psalm and not Psalms, and that's because we think that it's likely this originated as just one song. Um, and we think this because there are some manuscripts that have it listed as one song, um, and there's also a common refrain <coughs> that we're going to see that appears three times that kind of ties the whole song together. Um, so I think it's a little regrettable that we, we don't know what the music to the psalm is. But however, we aren't completely in the dark as to what the psalm may feel and sound like. So if you've ever read poetry, um, you're probably aware that creative writers make use of what we call poetic literary devices. Now this poet, the writer of Psalm 42, <coughs> had some real skills. These aren't some random thoughts just quickly scribbled on a page. It is carefully and meticulously crafted. It's a masterpiece, really, inspired by God, flowing forth from the psalmist's experience. The superscript, as you'll see in your Bibles, <clears throat> labels this song as a masculine, which is likely designating the psalm, sorry, excuse me, as an individual med meditation. Maybe a song to be quietly hummed or murmured during a time of private introspection. Now, most of the psalms follow a rhythmic pattern, just like in poetry, and this psalm is no different. So it's got a steady, you know, rhythm that's going all throughout the psalm. And we could recognize this psalm as an elegy, which would be a sad song, a mournful song, or what we might call a lament. If we were to recreate this song, we'd want to certainly use uh, those beautiful but haunting minor chords. But as we'll begin to see as we walk through this song together, that it's not your typical lament. And I'm commenting on the rhythm and the tone of the psalm, to simply point out that there are a few places in which the psalmist breaks from this pattern, which I think is important for what the author wants to communicate and what I hope to encourage you with today. So let us take a look at Psalm 42, 43. And two things I'd like you to keep in mind as we read the text is one, like I mentioned, that there is a common refrain, what we might call a chorus, that separates the song into three strophes, or what I'm just going to call stanzas. And then two, that the structure of the song is centered around verse 8. This is the climax and the turning point of the psalm. If you count the verses, it's literally at the very center of the psalm. And it's this idea that everything hinges on for this psalmist, as we'll see. So let me read our text today. So Psalm 42, 43 reads, To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. <coughs> as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, 
with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. From the land of Jordan, of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, Yahweh commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. Well, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So let me just ask you, does this song sound familiar? Have you ever felt this way? Do you recognize this despairing cry? <coughs> I know that I've been here. I know this song. I've sung this song. Feeling like God's not around and it seems like there's nothing that you can do to fix that. Now what the psalmist is experiencing goes by many names. We might call it spiritual depression or a dry season. St. John of the Cross called it the dark night of the soul. While others may refer to it as simply being in the valley as opposed to being on a mountaintop. This happens to us, all of us at some point in our life, even as Christians. And I want to think perhaps even especially as Christians, since we no longer stumble about in darkness. We've seen the light. We know what the light looks like. But still, there are moments and seasons in our lives that we look around and all seems dark. Often we don't want to be honest about it, but I think we should be. It's a scary thing to be honest, right? It involves opening ourselves up and being vulnerable, admitting that we are weak. We somehow got it into our heads that being a Christian means that we are perfect. We always feel close to God. We never struggle with doubt. We are always satisfied and happy. We fear that somehow admitting our weaknesses means that we have no faith. But we're content just to say we're fine, even when we aren't. We're fine. <laughs> but that's not authentic. And even Paul, who we so often hold up as a superhero, will admit that, right? He had to learn to be content in all things. Learn that he could face every situation through Christ. And so we, too, need to learn what hope is. The surety of our faith, the faithfulness of our God. Now, when we are honest with ourselves and with others about where we are, I think it's a witness to the world that Christians aren't perfect, that following Jesus isn't necessarily easy, but that we know that God alone can lift us up out of despair. 
We know that there is no hope apart from him. This is what I see when I'm reading through this psalm. I'm not sure there's anything more painful than feeling God's absence. Once we have tasted and seen the good goodness of God, it's a devastating thing to forget. But it's not the worst thing that can happen to us. When we have that longing, that painful absence, at least we are aware of God. We're aware that we need him, that we miss him. And this is where we meet the psalmist. He's alone at the source of the Jordan River, probably. He feels cut off from God and from those he loves and who love him. His sad state is not only apparent to him, but it's to his enemies around him. Now let me reread this first stanza. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Now remember a time when you were thirsty. Your mouth is dry. You cannot think of anything else except water. Cool, life-giving water. We all know that we need water. We can't live without it. And what happens when we go too long without water? We start to get dehydrated. And dehydration leads to pain, suffering, physical despair, and sometimes even death. <coughs> now it's in the same way that the deer in the wilderness longs for water. That we too, perhaps after a long, arduous run in the Texas heat, long for water. So too does the psalmist's soul long for God. This is real, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual longing. You know, this is a pretty popular verse, and we see this like on t-shirts and in pillows and stuff, and it's always this real sweet, serene kind of thing. But this is really like, this is agony what he's describing. It's our innermost being, what we would call the soul, needs God for survival, just as all living creatures need water. This inner beingness is the seat of our hunger, our thirst, our desire, our longing. It's all of my, shall we say, my Jessica-ness, and it's everything that you are that makes you, you, and we need God. Now the relief that the psalmist longs for is an encounter with God. More precisely, an encounter with God in his dwelling pit, dwelling place, which would be the temple. An alternative reading, and the reading I prefer of this verse, would say, when shall I come and see the face of God? Seeing God's face. Think about being separated from someone you love. You haven't seen them for a long time. Maybe you're able to talk to them on the phone, write letters. But still, it's, it's not quite enough, right? What you want is to be in that person's presence. You want to see their face. The psalmist longs for intimacy to really know and be known by God. This is what sustains the soul, God's presence. So one commentator explains that for the language of the psalms, this expression, this face of Yahweh, is the characteristic expression of the secret of Yahweh's presence in Israel's worship. Those who seek this face are endeavoring to go to the sanctuary and participate in Israel's assemblies in order to see Yahweh, that is to experience his presence, his help, and his grace. Now notice the psalmist does not directly address God just yet. It's as if he's assessing his situation. It's dark and dismal, and so naturally he wonders, where is God in all of this? Now this feeling of God's absence is deeply grieves the psalmist. 
I mentioned earlier that I couldn't think of anything more painful than God's absence, as it's the very thing that we need to survive and to thrive. However, I don't think experiencing God's absence is the worst thing that can happen to us. I think it's kind of like medicine. Medicine that is kind of hard to swallow. It maybe makes us a little sick. But we have to take it because that's when the healing begins. Because feeling God's absence is better than feeling nothing at all, right? It jolts us awake. It makes us painfully aware of our utter dependence upon God. And it causes us to cry out for God to stir us up. And so the psalmist has been crying, painfully aware of his need for God's presence. And to make things worse, everyone on the outside seems to think that his God has abandoned him too. Tears are flowing constantly, so much so that he's been unable to eat. His tears are insatiable, and they will not give him any respite. Now think about the imagery here. If you've just been thirsting and thirsting and haven't had anything, and he's been painting us a picture of his dry soul, and now we learn that he's only had his tears to feast on. Salty tears. Imagine drinking salty water when you're dehydrated. It would only make it worse, right? <clears throat> no relief when what you need is cool, flowing water. So in a sense, if we are left to our own devices, and we have settled to just dwell in our despair, the pain and the agony will only intensify. We need a reason to hope. We need to talk to ourselves. What we need to do is remember. Now our memories play an important part when it comes to overcoming despair. We need to remember how God has been faithful in the past. This then gives us assurance that he will indeed be faithful now and in the future. We know this is how God is. It is who he is. God is faithful. For the psalmist, God's presence is tied into the temple worship and to the people of God. So those times he can call to mind and remember God's presence clearly are those times when he was in the place of worship where God's presence was manifested and among those who were also worshiping God. He's likely remembering a past festival time um, when God's people would ascend to the sanctuary, God's holy hill, singing songs, praising God, and rejoicing. This is where the psalmist wants to get back to. This is a place and a time that was full of joy and God's presence was evident, experienced, and known. Not only that, I mean, he was at the head of the crowd leading them in, really, really excited and happy and seeking God. And the psalmist cries out, God, I remember this. I remember what it was like to be in your presence. I don't know where you are or how I'm going to get out there again, but I remember, and this is what I want to get back to. I want to get back to the people of God, to worshiping in your sanctuary. Now, it seems the psalmist is on a bit of a roller coaster, right? He wants God and knows God is good, but where is he? He remembers what it's like to be with him, but where is he? I think we've all felt this way at some point. We can remember, obviously, enjoying God, loving God, and needing him. And then we find this place, and we don't really know why we're there. And it doesn't quite make sense to us. Now, if you notice, despite the theme of this song being about God's absence, we heard God quite a bit in this first stanza and throughout the song. In total, the psalmist uses the word Elohim, or what we would gloss over as God, more than 20 times throughout the song. And so that's a lot for a 16-verse song. So just think about what it would be like for someone, for us maybe, who was meditating on this, murmuring this song to themselves when they felt like God wasn't around, and what would they hear? God. God. 
my God, living God. I think this is an intentional literary device to remind readers and singers and hearers of this song that even when we feel like God is nowhere around, he is still with us. And now as we come to the refrain for the first time, we see the psalmist engage in internal dialogue. He talks to himself. Now I hope you've all seen this movie or read it or are familiar with it, but if you've seen Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, you'll likely remember that scene where Smeagol, who's also known as Gollum, has an internal conversation with himself. It's a brilliant scene, arguably one of the most memorable from the movie trilogy. Is everyone at least maybe somewhat familiar with that? Now to set up the scene for you, the poor, pitiful Smeagol has one desire, one thing alone that he thirsts for. It's the One Ring. Now Smeagol has been stalking Frodo, the bearer of the One Ring, throughout the rocky crags on the way to Mordor, and is eventually discovered by Frodo's travel companion, Samwise Gamgee. Now while Sam wants to get rid of Smeagol, Frodo has compassion on him, and he asks him to be their guide into Mordor. Now Frodo, unlike so many before him, treats Smeagol with kindness, and Smeagol comes to call Frodo his master. Now one night, while Frodo and Sam are sleeping, Smeagol comes to think about what he's going to do. He says he wants it, we needs it, must have the precious. See, he's at odds with himself, divided against himself, for he wants his precious, the ring, and part of him is willing to do anything to get it. And part of him wants him to kill Frodo and Sam so he can take that ring. But he also wants to trust his master, to believe that his master is going to take care of him from now on. He goes back and forth with himself, the one self trying to convince the other of what is true and what is a lie. Because Smeagol and Gollum are not in agreement about the truth, and there's disagreement over the reality of their situation. But in the end, Smeagol wins out and simply will not listen to Gollum, shouting, leave now and never come back. He starts cheering and joyfully proclaims, Smeagol is free. I thought about doing a Smeagol voice, but it's not very good, so you're welcome. <laughs> now, I think this is a pretty good picture of what's going on here in the psalm. Maybe minus the craziness that is Gollum, but to be fair, it's probably not that hard for us to identify with this character. We, too, are broken, but thankfully, we have a God who mends us up and makes us whole, and hopefully a little less crazy. So up till now, the psalmist has been listening to himself, but now he's going to start talking to himself. We have the refrain, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. It's as if the psalmist asks himself, what are you doing? How is it possible that you are depressing and grumbling within me? Look, I remember God's presence. I remember that he is good and faithful. So this is what you're going to do, hope. Hope in God because the darkness will lift. Now I'm not sure the psalmist is quite convinced here as we'll see as we continue on, but he is beginning to move away from despair towards a renewed hope. We will see this refrain again twice more. So now we're at the second stanza where he's talking about his soul being cast down and again he's gonna take up the act of remembering. The psalmist knows that he can't make God show up. And for the time being, he can't get back to the temple. So, in an attempt to fight his despairing soul, he's going to remember. The important role of the memory is seen throughout the Old Testament. It is both a means of correction, or sometimes a warning, and often it's the catalyst that brings about a renewed hope in God. So do you know the story of Israel crossing the Jordan in Joshua chapter 3? 
The Israelites were told to cross over the Jordan River, taking the Ark of the Covenant with them. And as they passed through, God piled up the waters, and a man from each tribe took a stone from the middle of the Jordan and set them on dry land. These stones were set up as a memorial so that when they would pass by and their children would pass by and ask, what do these stones mean? They would tell them of God's faithfulness. It's like that Johnny Cash uh, says in his song, you ask me how I know I'm saved. I said, well, I was there when it happened and I ought to know. I guess I ought to know. I just did not quote that very well. Sorry. When I was there, I was there when it happened and I guess I ought to know. So God gives evidence of his faithfulness in our lives. We were there when it happened. We ought to know that he's faithful. We need to take up this act of remembering, both as individuals and as a church community. We practice remembering times of God's faithfulness. We need to set up in our hearts and minds these stones to remind us of how God has acted in the past to point us to a future hope. And the Universal Church has some uh, memorials of its own. In particular, we have the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, to remind us, of, remind us of God's greatest act of faithfulness, the cross. Now, when we think about talking to ourselves, I don't want us to be confused with some self-help pep talk. That's not what's happening here. The world, and especially our culture, I think, would tell you that you just need a little dose of optimism. Everything will work out for the best. We don't know exactly how or why we can even say that with confidence, but it'll get better. And guess what? The universe has not made any promises to you, but God has. We worship a God who has promised to right the wrongs of the world, and in him alone can we hope. He alone turns our darkness into light. He was faithful then. He's always been faithful. He has always come through. Maybe not in the way I wanted or you wanted or expected, but he has never failed. Mm -hmm. He has promised to always be there. To the world, it's foolish that we could even think to rejoice when we're suffering. When it seems all has gone wrong, but Paul tells us in Romans 5 that we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Now this should give us comfort. It's not merely that we hope that has any effect in our lives, but it's also who we hope in. We hope in the living God and the covenant-keeping God who is the anchor to our soul. We hope in the resurrected Christ who has promised to raise us up also. We hope in the Holy Spirit, our comforter, our helper, and God does not disappoint. As we likely now find the psalmist at the mouth of the Jordan, he now turns his attention away from images of thirst and drought to the raging waters around him. Now I read this and I immediately think of Jonah when he's talking about all of your waves and your breakers have passed over me. As line 2 of, the verse, of verse 7 is word for word what we find in Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish. In stark contrast to the first stanza, we have a surplus, an abundance of water, water imagery here. So whatever it is that is happening with this psalmist, we know this. It is overwhelming. Perhaps he feels like he's drowning in despair, overcome by the darkness of his situation. What's going to pull him out? Here we reach what I consider to be the crescendo of this song. It's verse 8. By day, Yahweh sends forth his steadfast love, or the Hebrew would be chesed, and at night his song is with me, 
a prayer to the God of my life. Now, I like to picture this as a great shout, an exclamation. This is where one of the places the psalmist breaks from his train of thought, breaks from the meter of the poem, so this should capture our full attention. It goes from being a lament to a song of praise. Now, the psalmist has been working through his grief. Hope has been rising up in struggle against despair, almost like the churning of the waterfalls. And suddenly he breaks forth in proclamation, I know that Yahweh sends his love to me by day. I know it. Here the psalmist asserts to his doubting soul defiantly what he knows to be true. God's covenant love and kindness. God is faithful. It's as if he says like Smeagol, leave now despair and never come back. This is the first and only occurrence of the divine name Yahweh in this song. Before we had the word Elohim, God, but now we have Yahweh, which is the covenant name, paired with his other covenant word, Chesed, or steadfast love. Now, I learned very, very early on in my first Hebrew class that there's really no putting this Hebrew idea of Chesed into a single word. It's God's loyalty, loving kindness, steadfast love, mercy, and more. This is who Yahweh is. He is Chesed. The psalmist remembers how God's covenant love has been with him during the day when things weren't dark. Remembering this covenant love has produced a response in him and reciprocates with prayer back to God. Now, he knows it's not something he has stirred up within himself. Rather, it is God who has stirred up this memory of covenant love, and he knows that this covenant love of God is more than enough to carry him even through the darkest night. But still, we're faced with the reality that there are times when despair and hope walk hand in hand. The former trying to pull us back, all the while the latter pushing us forward to joy. We have an already not yet situation here. As the psalmist knows where his hope lies, but he's still working, uh, wor attempting to work it out in the reality of his situation. We often think that, you know, that our faith follows our feelings when we feel something and that's what we believe in. But that's actually backwards. Our feelings will follow our faith. So we need to recognize that, you know, our feelings are not, they're not always constant. And thus they are not a reliable compass. But God is constant. He is unchanging. He is consistently faithful. We have to wrestle with the tension that exists when our heart doesn't match up with our head. Remembering what God says is true, knowing it deep inside, and yet still feeling like we did before remembering. When does our heart catch up with our reality? Imagine what it must have been like in the days between Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, where the disciples were wondering, what now? This is not how I thought this was going to go down. He said he'd never leave us, and now he's gone. Likewise, the psalmist is wrestling, trying to figure out how to bring together the reality of his circumstances and the undeniable truth of who God is. And by the time we reach the second occurrence of the refrain, we sense that the psalmist has begun to move away from despair towards a renewed hope. He's a bit more convinced that he's not hoping in vain than when he started. And he knows that despair, it just doesn't make sense in light of God's covenant love. So by the last stanza of the song, the psalmist is much more assured that he's not hoping in vain. We learn that it is God who must intervene to bring about this hope to bring about this renewed praise. The psalmist mentions something of oppressors, but he doesn't fill us in on the details. 
But what we do know is that he desires God to do justice for him, and this ultimately will lead the psalmist to return to God's sanctuary, where he will again know his presence. But God must send his light and his truth to lead us back to him. He did it before with the Exodus. God led out his people as a pillar of light, freeing them from their captors. So I wonder if, again, the psalmist is remembering the Exodus, this great event that is at the epicenter of who Israel is, that crowning faithful act by their covenant God that Israel was constantly going back to in times of trouble. Remember the Exodus. Remember how God set us free from our captors and led us out by his light. So I want to ask us, as a people who have the cross of Christ at the epicenter of who we are, what does this psalm mean for us? In light of who Jesus is, in light of his coming to earth, living and dwelling among us, dying for us, and raising from the dead for us, in light of his promise of return and heaven and earth coming together, what does this mean for us? And I want to go ahead and jump to the New Testament and say, for us, it's clear that this light and truth is Christ. In John 8, 12, Jesus says that he is the light of the world. And whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And again, he tells us in John 14, 6, that he is the way and the truth and the life. Jesus came and initiated the great exodus, freeing us from sin and death. We are no longer held captive. And just as the grave could not hold Jesus, it has no hold on us. We are promised resurrection through Jesus, God's light, God's truth. We are promised his presence forever. Now when we long for God's presence, we need simply to look to Christ. God's presence is no longer found solely in Zion. Christ came and brought the fullness of God with him. God's presence has been transferred from that holy hill to Jesus and to his body, us the church. Jesus promised the Holy, the helper, the Holy Spirit, who now lives and move, moves in us. And even Christ himself knows what it's like for the soul to be sorrowful. He likely alludes to this very psalm when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, in this darkest moment of his life, hours before going to the cross. Jesus, who's both fully God and fully man, knows suffering, knows loneliness and darkness, and so he has compassion on us when we find ourselves despairing too. So in the face of darkness and despair, let us take up the act of remembering this good news. We can cling to God's promise in Hebrews 10.24 that says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And so we preach the good news of Christ to ourselves. We preach to ourselves. But we also need each other. Because sometimes that inner struggle between self and self will continue on despite our best efforts. God has made us in a way that we will only thrive as a part of the body, his body. We need to work out the rest of that Hebrews passage in chapter 10. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawn near. Now, not only do we need to remember what God has done in our own lives, but as a church community, we need to remember what God has done in and through each other. If you see evidence of God's grace in somebody else's life, tell them. You have no idea where they're at. They may, may need to hear that because they may not be able to see it themselves. Now, seeing God at work in, our, in the lives of others can be one of the greatest encouragements to our own spirits. So, 
If I can somehow sum up all that we've gone through this morning, what can we do when we are faced with this dark night of the soul? And somehow I came up with a three-point application that is complete with alliteration. <laughs> so it worked out pretty good. So one, recognize. Recognize where you are. Recognize your thirst for God. Recognize your need for Him. And recognize that you are not alone in this. I mean, the list of saints that have gone before and have written on this, I mean, it's long, 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 long. Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, tons of other people. They know what this is like. And then two, remember. Remember who God is. Remember how he has been faithful in times past. Remember his goodness. Ask others to remind you of what, is God, what God has done. Grace, forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation. Remember the good news of the gospel. Remember God's promises. And remember that he's been faithful. And remember, finally, what it was like to praise him, to rejoice in him. Because we know that it's always darkest before the dawn. And then three, finally, rejoice. Simply rejoice. Even if you don't quite feel like it just yet, rejoice. Trust that God will stir up those feel feelings to accompany the faith that he's given you. Rejoice. So I'll leave you with a story I read this week about a saint who has gone before us. During the Thirty Years' War in Europe in the 17th century, German pastor Paul Gerhardt, if that's right, and his family were forced to flee from his home. One night, as they stayed in a small village inn, homeless and afraid, his wife broke down and cried openly in despair. To comfort her, Gerhardt reminded her of scripture promises about God's provision and keeping. Then, going out to the garden to be alone, he too broke down and wept. He felt he had come to his darkest hour. Well, soon afterward, Gerhardt felt the burden lifted and sensed anew the Lord's presence. Taking his pen, he wrote a hymn that has brought comfort to many. Give to the winds thy fears, hope and be undismayed. God hears thy sighs and counts thy tears. God shall lift up thy head. Through waves and clouds and storms, he gently clears the way. Wait thou his time, so shall the night, so night soon end in joyous day. Sisters and brothers, as one who has faced the dark night of soul, and will likely face it at some point again. Let me encourage you. Let us rejoice together that even in our darkest hours, our God is with us. And when you are faced with despair, ask yourselves, why are you downcast? Hope in God. He is faithful. Would you pray with me? Father, we just thank you that you are faithful, Lord. We thank you for the gift your word and we thank you for the gifts of the psalms and the songs that we so easily find ourselves in mm -hmm. and god i just pray that you would remind us if we're facing darkness lord that you you are a light mm -hmm. that you are a covenant god that you're faithful lord that you keep your promises and let us rejoice again it's in christ's name that i pray amen mm -hmm.